The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant, 7 to 10 a.m. Big Fat Juicy, the choice is yours. What a beautiful song as a first choice. That indeed is the first choice of our guest presenter on the show. We're chatting to her in London. She's on lockdown in London. She's an internationally acclaimed writer. She's a very independent scholar in many ways. A feminist free speech activist. She's written a series of crime novels. And uh, she's also focused on uh, gender violence in South Africa. Her books are published in the USA and the UK and uh, have also been translated into a variety of languages. On the line to us, Margie Orford. Margie, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, good morning. I had a little giggle when I saw you said, I've got my early morning face on. And I wanted to say, you have no idea. We have our early morning faces on in this show every time. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank God for radio. <laughs> Margie, you know, I woke up because it's an hour earlier here. So I woke up and I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to coordinate my features and my brain and my voice and get it all together? But I managed. You've totally and you managed. Well done. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Let's um, start off with let's just start off with that choice song. I mean, Lou Reed, such a perfect day. There's such a great melancholia around it. You know that idea of going out and maybe catching a late movie. Uh, sometimes we think uh, maybe this is part of an imaginary world that actually never ever existed. Well, exactly. That's why I chose that song. I mean, it's I've loved it since I first heard it, probably when I was a student. A student, and I arrived in Cape Town from Windhoek, which is not a city known for its uh, cutting-edge cultural coolness. But the Velvet Underground I got, and why I chose that song this morning, or for this morning, it is Sunday morning, but that feeling of just being able to wander at liberty and choose what you do and stop off and have a drink or chat to somebody. And I thought, that was heaven. That was just yeah. heaven. Yeah. How is- and we can't, we can't do it. At no. the moment. For a long time yet. How is lockdown going for you? How are you handling it? Well, London, the UK has been a bit, uh, you know, we're allowed to exercise. And I have to say there are thousands of newborn joggers <laughs> who have suddenly appeared in yeah. their baby grows or they like little jogging suits. And one the other day nearly crashed into me. He was so newborn, he still had the labels on his clothes, you know, the sort of like Amazon order, but, and they sort of puff and pant and very self-righteous, but I think it's been easier than South Africa. Um, what my youngest daughter almost, she was um, in San Francisco when it all started yeah. and I was very relieved to get her back here. I must say she, she almost got caught when the flight stopped, but I've sort of tried to think of the phrase that the Californians have used, which is sheltering in place. Yeah. Um, it's just much gentler and it does two things. A, you're not locked up. We aren't locked up. We're not prisoners. It's a thing of shelter, sheltering ourselves, sheltering others. And in place, those of us who are fortunate enough to have homes that are are sheltering, are comfortable, um, to to think of it like that, it gives some agency back. This sort of lockdown, very mm. militaristic thing creates a. I have trouble. I had trouble with that in the beginning, and now I've just kind of accepted it and gone into this. 
um, routine. But I must say, like most people, some days are just fine. I wake up and I think I'm lucky to be alive. The people I love are healthy. Mm. I mean, I must say with the disease, in the beginning, I didn't know anybody who had it. It was sort of remote. And then I knew people who knew people who had it. And then a week later, I had close people who were really ill. And I think that that reality, when you think this this illness is this plague or whatever, really affects people and people suffer so much. I mean, one friend of mine who had it, she said for three weeks it felt like she had ground glass in her lungs. Yeah. So, yeah, so like that other days, it's just absolutely awful. I can't do anything. I feel like my brain has been removed and this sort of feeling of no future or how to imagine the future is, is hard, like for everybody. So so one of the things that I've noticed, and, and I do follow you on Twitter, so which, which was where I think the kind of intrigue of going back to you as a writer, you, you've written a series of novels, um, and I understand that you're currently writing a novel now. So, so, so you're being forced into lockdown to write <laughs> at the same time. But what, there was something quite charming about the fact that you then put out the call to uh, – to people online and in social media to help you write and perhaps even help name one of your characters? Yes, they did. So I'm writing, so I wrote a series, a Claire Hart series, which um, I mean, they only like probably a few hundred thousand people listening to this. So it still will stay stops, top secret. It's currently, <laughs> currently being developed and I can't tell you anything more into a television series, which I'm very excited about. Um, so the, the Claire Hart novels I wrote were about uh, crime and violence mm. in South Africa, trying to understand it. Yes. And one of the things I have, please, can I, can I boast? Can I show? Yes, talk? you may. Just for a second. <laughs> um, I've just completed somehow in the, in this lockdown sheltering in place period, my PhD dissertation, which I've done at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, which is, a PhD by publication where I had to write sort of what what I was doing in my novels, which was mysterious to me. So I did manage to get that done. I have um, to I have to just jump in. I'm sorry, I'm riffing a bit here, but you know I, I read the title of your PhD and I thought it had an enormously ironic title given where we are now. I know the title for it is nostalgia for the future. So. <laughs> What I was, and I thought of that title before all of this pandemonium started. Uh, so what I was looking at in my in my crime fiction was one of the feelings of loss that many South Africans had at the great promise of the new South Africa, where everything uh, would be different to the old apartheid South Africa. Somehow, didn't quite happen. The you know, especially violence against women and children mm. continued unabated. So I was looking at that um, gulf between the two. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, so so I did that. And I must say, perhaps just to say about sheltering in place, those of us, people who have work that they have to do, it's sometimes difficult to keep through the day. But having an external deadline is very, very helpful. You yeah. know, you have to get up, you have to do it. Um, yeah. So with this novel I'm writing at the moment, which is a romance, and I'm disastrous at romance. I have 
I tried to write one before and everybody died by page four, literally everybody, because I couldn't think of a reason to keep them alive and I was in crime mode. Yeah. But this novel, which is a romance kind of love story, I suppose, um, and an erotic romance in some way, interestingly, writing this under this sheltering in place where we can't be together, we can't touch, we can't love each other, whether it's a lover or a friend or, yeah. you know, to not hug your friends is terrible, has kind of really given me this sense of how important it is that we are together, how much we need to be close to each other. Yeah. Anyways, I couldn't, I had to get a name for my hero, um, the love interest, and it turned into the most hilarious um, Twitter conversation about what a love interest in a romance should be. But in the end, we came down on Daniel, but it was it was heated. I have to say it was close. <laughs> so your love interest was Daniel. What was kind of the worst name that you heard for uh, this particular novel? Ooh, I can't af- afford to insult any of my lovely Twitter fun- uh, followers. All the names were wonderful. Daniel just suited this romance because he has to go into the lion's den with my female uh, come lead. On. You, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a love interest called Pookie. Mm, Pucky might be slightly disappointing aspect of a man in this case, but uh, <laughs> I don't think well, I don't think you could have a Pucky. Oh, he didn't come so up. Pucky didn't come up. I have to say. We're chatting to the author Margie Orford. She's written a series of books like Clockwork, Daddy's Girl, Gallows Hill, which was fabulous, um, really great book about the discovery of bones in Cape Town and uh, many more. And when we come back from the break, we'll also be chatting to her about uh, the idea of um, her as a feminist and an activist with regards to issues of rape and focusing on gender violence. Man, such a fantastic choice of song, Nana Cherry and I Got You Under My Skin. Fabulous choice, Margie. Oh, I love that song. Um, the reason I chose that Nena Terry, I, I just think she's incredible. And I, people who are listening, I mean, it's worth just hearing that voice of hers, that beauty of that voice and the sort of focus of her outrage at the AIDS yeah. pandemic, the HIV pandemic. But watch it on, on YouTube. She's just uh, got such power and strength, that woman. But what a what made me think of that or choose that particular song is that that was the kind of anthem of um, the HIV uh, pandemic, um, which hit sort of late 80s, early 90s, um, when I was very young, you were young. And I thought so much of how long it took for there to be a human response, like a humane response to people of dying of HIV. And I had a friend, I lived in London then actually in 1988, 1989. And we had a friend, wonderful man called Peter Sabaro, who was an architect, who was one of the first, um, he was the first person I knew of, but he died in isolation in a ward in a London hospital. And he wrote the most incredible piece about dying alone. And so I thought of Peter, I thought of all the many people who died. I thought of the shift around HIV with people saying, oh, it's 
uh, it's gay men, it's drug users, it's it's anybody but us, whoever us might have been defined mm. as. Um, and then Nina Cherry did that incredible song. I think there was a whole, you know, kind of Frank's, uh, there was a um, Cole Porter song that was used. Yes. Yeah. I think that was that that was the song, and she she made it a visceral and real and embodied. And somehow the you know the the spread of this virus is very different. But I've seen again the same sort of human response. Two responses: the one is kind kindness and affection, and you stop. You 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 make sure nobody else. You change your behavior so no one else gets ill, and you take mm. care of yourself. The other one is this sort of idiotic macho swagger which um president of the united states seemed to have has this condition kind of the worst and jai bolsonaro in 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 brazil of um the uncaringness of it so nina cherry i thought what's going to be our anthem around Hmm. this strange disease which affects people so differently and so unpredictably Wow. It's interesting because I hadn't really thought, could there be a song and what would that song be? For me, the anthem of this particular virus. And it's something we'll put out to our listeners, if not now, then certainly uh, over the next week or so. I'd love to hear what people say about that. I want to take you back to um, writing and writing crime novels, but specifically crime novels which have a female um, protagonist, which talk to, in many ways, gender violence, and, and Gallo Hills would be one of those. Um, and and the, what I want to add to it is that a little, a little earlier we spoke to a very young author. She's 11 years old. Her name is um, Kwesi Ntetwa. And Kwesi wrote this book called The Key to the Secret Door of Dinosaurs. So mm. I said to her, I will be speaking to you later. And uh, she had a little bit of advice for you. And the one was... Thank says, you. I need advice. Says, I'm she struggling. Says, she says, no. She just writes on scraps of paper, whatever comes to mind, and then she pulls that paper together. And what's also extremely important is reading. <laughs> and that I, girl knows what she's doing. She's exactly right. <laughs> and then I just started to think about you, and I said, no, well, you know, Margie Orford is very famous for, for um, her, her thrillers, her um, crime thrillers. And then... Crazy got particularly excited and said, no, that was what she was really interested in writing, particularly about drug smugglers across borders and things like that. And I, I, I was interested, what got you into that particular genre? I mean, I'm passionate about that genre in TV, particularly, well, I mean, I can watch any crime thriller series, no matter who the, the, the protagonist is. I love them. Well, I came to, I, I sort of stumbled into the crime Genre. When when I started, um, so when I started writing them, I'd worked as a. I'd come back to live in South Africa in, in 2001. I'd been living in Namibia, and then um, I got a scholarship and went to New York for two years with three children in New York from 99 to 2001. And um, in 2001, when I returned with my family, we came to settle in Cape Town which I left in, in 88. I grew up in Namibia and I sort of went back there in independence in 1990. And what struck me when I came back to South Africa was this feeling that this undeclared civil war of the, of the 1980s, which had been resolved in 
what we're going to celebrate tomorrow, 27th of mm. April, the mm-hmm. elections in 94. Yeah. It was as though the civil war had sublimated from from the streets and and um as a as a protest against a, a criminal state a criminal government into the intimate realm of the home and into particularly this violence that was done to women and children to people who were more vulnerable so i did a lot of investigative reporting on that at the time like uh, about like your friend crazy about uh, organized crime drug dealing trafficking, uh, the links between politicians, certain politicians and um, gangs and various things. And I found that when I wrote um, an article, I had, you know, you have a thousand words, two thousand words, I could list all the facts, but I couldn't get at the truth of what drove what seemed to me a very psychologically driven violence, this great trauma that South Africa has suffered, the trauma of our history, um, 350 years of unbelievably hideous violence, slavery, colonialism, apartheid, a long protracted uh, war, and then a very sudden peace Mm -hmm. in which the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission went some way in uh, trying to ameliorate that suffering, but it was there and what I saw every day around me in, in Cape Town where I was working. And I just thought, I need to tell, I need the 100,000 words you get in a novel. So I wrote a, my first crime novel, which was like clockwork, in a way for literary reasons, because I needed a protagonist who could go anywhere. And the only people who can go anywhere are cops, journalists, and mortuary van drivers now mortuary van drivers they're very useful people they're very nice but they're a bit difficult to sort of have as the glamorous center of a novel so i chose um (laughs) an investigative journalist yeah which kind of was what i was doing um because it gave me a sort of uh you know kind of for similitude in a very segregated society of trying to reflect it and what I suppose I did with those novels um, was explore the different layers. Gallows Hill, the the book that um, you mentioned that you liked particularly, uh, looks at the effects of slavery, literally slavery and, you know, the sort of buried history on South Africa and the present in Cape Town. And I used it as a kind of diagnostic tool to understand and answer my very simple question, which is why is South Africa so violent? I always used to say when I traveled internationally about those books i'd say south africans are the nicest people 95 percent of them are the nicest people it's only five percent who will try and kill you and you've just got to be careful of those the caveat with that in i think murders in south africa the last time i looked at something like 85 percent of murders or you know a very high proportion of murders are perpetrated by family members mm. or people you know yeah so i guess you just have to be careful about how you choose your family. (laughs) You know, Margie, you mentioned something really interesting. And you you talk about this idea of how you just couldn't get to the truth. And it reminded me of a conversation that, that that I recently had with an author. And for the life of me, I can't remember which one I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, we all the same. We all the same. Yeah. We all have faces for radio. So just oh, say an author. It's good enough. An author. And it was this idea of how fiction can sometimes be a better vehicle to tell the truth than nonfiction. 
Yes, that's true. You're doing different things. I mean, I've written nonfiction before. Um, when you're writing nonfiction, you you are obliged and to to kind of stay with facts that can be verified. Okay, so you're doing, and there's some brilliant, um, brilliant South African nonfiction writers um, who do who've influenced my work quite extensively in how I think about things. But when you're writing fiction, you're doing a different kind of truth telling. Mm. Um, you're doing a distillation. So, for instance, in in a crime novel, um, I think of, for instance, there's a um, a wonderful book by Sofiso Mzobe called Young Blood, which was um, set in the township he grew up in, Kwamashu, in in I think it was Kwamashu, uh, outside Durban. He did something similar to what I was doing. You take a number of stories, you make a composite character, you can move time and space around a little bit to magnify um, the experiential truth, if I can put it like that, an emotional truth that people experience. And that's what one goes for in fiction. Um, Although... Fact is way stranger than fiction in South Africa. I remember two of the cops who <laughs> know, helped me, true. and because I did a lot of work with the police, two of them who caught who helped me, their surnames were Engel and Devil, Angel and Devil. Now, you, there's no ways you could put into a crime novel that you've got a cop duo called Angel and Devil. People will just say, oh, rubbish. You're just <laughs> like, that. I can't believe that. But that was true. That was their names. Captain Engel and Captain Devil. So... I would have loved to have used that. I I absolutely love that altogether. Um, Margie, we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we have your first guest on the line, Ella Wakatama. Um, We're going to talk about her in a moment, so if you can just uh, give us some suggestions as to why you've chosen her once we come back. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, destination unknown. We're talking to the internationally acclaimed author, Margie Orford. She's also a scholar and a free speech activist. And uh, her first guest today here in the, uh, in the studio on the line is Ella Wakatama, OBE in the UK. She's chair of the AKO Kane Prize for African Writing, editor at large at Canongate, and Creative Manchester Senior Research Fellow at the University of Manchester. Margie, I suppose our first question to you is, why Ella as your first choice? Why Ella? Why Ella? Question. Hi, <laughs> hi. Sorry, sorry. For the exact, we, Ella and I see each other at least two or three times a week in normal times. And um, many cocktails have died for us, I have to just say. <laughs> and we haven't seen each other for ages, which we, uh, which is terrible. Terrible. Yeah. But Ella, where can I even start with Ella? Ella is like the queen of literature in London. There is a queen in Buckingham Palace, but the real queen of books lives down south. And she, since I moved to London five years ago, she has been my friend and my guide. And we talk books, we talk shoes, we talk fashion. Um, and our lives have kind of woven together. We worked together. I was very honored to be a judge on... The, it was just called the Kane Prize um, uh, in 2019. Um, so, yeah, we just 
Ella's, I mean, she can tell you she, she is extremely capable of speaking for herself. I can assure you of that. But she has <laughs> transformed, I think, transformed what the publishing, uh, what gets published in, in the UK. She's brought all sorts of authors uh -huh. and writers, particularly African writers, um, to global attention and has defined the reading taste for a generation, I would say. So over to Ella. Ella, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning and uh, welcome to the show. Um, I want to ask you something because I, I think that Margie's hit on a very interesting thing, which is this idea of changing the publishing landscape. Um, a week or two ago, I was chatting to a British author, Rosanna, Rosanna Akana, The Book of Echoes. And we were talking about also that shift and change. And I wonder if you could maybe talk about or interrogate that idea of what you had to do to really get people to start rethinking publishing in a place like the UK. That's a wonderful question. The, the answer, I think, is um, it's multi-led and complicated, but just really putting it simply, as a publisher, as a commissioning editor who's choosing books, um, who's reading those original submissions and then, I guess, you know, it's like a decision table to decide what needs to be published. You are, are um, basically drawing on your own taste. I'm one of those children who would read under the covers at night, um, long after lights out, or kind of a tree to hide from yeah. my brother so I could read a book. So when I started out in publishing, my... I didn't really have a goal, but I did have the strong desire to build the ideal bookshelf. And my first job was at Penguin Classics. And I remember looking at the bookshelf and not seeing the African senior writers I knew should be there. And then setting about trying to get those writers into the canon. And that changing of the landscape happened because, you know, if one is fueled by this desire for... Um, for a complete and um, excellent reading landscape. And that, that excellence doesn't happen if it lacks diversity. So I, I think that one of, we, one of the things around changing and developing the diversity of authors, and I'm, I'm very proud to say that I think it's happening very rapidly in South Africa, and we've seen a major, major shift in that. Um, uh, but a lot of that is also about, and if I think about the UK, and I'd ask you and Margie this question, is the idea of if you change the reading landscape, you may start to change the way people perceive themselves, the way they perceive uh, immigrants in a country, the way they perceive uh, gender, the way they perceive diversity. And do we see that as being a possibility through books? Margie, I'll, I'll take you with that. Um. Okay, so talking as a, speaking as a writer, like what, I think that does happen. I think that books are transformed. If I think of my own experience first as a, a reader, as your, your 11, your wise, 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 out of the mouth of babes, 11-year-old said, writing begins with reading. What does that mean? Obviously, yeah. you have to learn to read and write. That's just a technical thing. What one learns by reading is being transported into another world, being transported out of yourself into a world which you are not familiar with. It requires 
a foundational empathy. You, you literally mm. inhabit the body of another person. And reading or listening to a story, if you think of it, which is the same, is an ex incredibly intimate experience. You are taken and made into the body of another. Yeah. So Beautiful. if you think of the person who, the two writers who utterly changed how my mind is structured. The one is Titi Dangaremba with her book, Zimbabwean writer who, with yes. her first book, Nervous Conditions, which transformed how I understood the effects of colonialism on the psyche of um, the girls who were at the center of this book. It changed my mind, not my opinions, it changed my mind. In the same way as reading Franz Fanon changes your mind, it alters how it's structured. The other person was Toni Morrison with mm, yeah. um, Taking, with Beloved was the first book that I read, and then all her books. So for a white person, a white child growing up, utterly segregated, where the, the point of apartheid was to destroy empathy and fellow feeling. That's what racism does. That's what um, class hierarchies do. Books, and especially fiction, make you other. And that's what we need to feel, is to feel other. <laughs> I don't know what Ella, she would have, you know, what her response is. But for me, that's what it is. It takes you to another world. Ella, I'll, I'll hand over to you. That's a... Uh... Uh, an extraordinary description of it. And I wonder if you could maybe um, uh, take that a step further. That's a beautiful description, Margie. At the top of the show, you were speaking about um, fiction and, you know, and why, why we read fiction. And, and I would add nonfiction to this as well, because if you think about how history books are, are written, the things that the, the historians decide to keep in or yeah. to take out, determine what you, what you know about your past and therefore what you know about your present. And so as a publisher, I think about, you know, I'm, I also publish um, non-fiction work. I think about who is writing the story and therefore what's that perspective going to be. Because if you think about the work of writing, the work of publishing, as being about building culture and building knowledge, and, you know, that widening of horizons that... Um, ability to empathize is really based on the point of view of that writer. And, and you know, I take it further and say the point of view is me as a publisher, as a curator, um, the gatekeeper as well. And so, yes, it can change the landscape. It can change how, how people act, react, feel, or understand each other. I think it happens slowly. I may be a little less optimistic than Margie in this regard. Yeah. I think it happens slowly. But I think it's absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial. It also starts to raise things. I mean, if I think about, um, and this is a completely different angle perhaps, is that if I think about how um, we, when we read books and how they start to talk about the way we see the world, the way we, as, as Margie says, that we, way we look at the other and are the other and become the other, and the us and them breakdown and all of that. What it also starts to make you think about, and I'm thinking of um, Susanka Msamang's book, is it makes you start to think about where we sit in the world. So there's a geography of, of where we sit, but there's also another kind of emotional sitting or an emotional home, if one wants to call it that. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if that is an opportunity that we take in order to make people realize that actually home belongs to everyone. 
Are you asking me or oh, Anna? I'll ask Margie. I'll hand over to you. Sorry, I'm so used to like just <laughs> having people in the studio. Yes. Um, you know, I think for me, writing is an experience of profound homelessness. You kind oh, of that's brilliant. Estrange yourself in many ways, and one of the the if we go back to this sheltering in place that we're doing now. One of the first, this is the first time in my life I've had to be in one place. I've had to make myself at home hmm. um, in my tiny London flat and just live here and inhabit myself. It's one of the elements of, for me, for being a writer is an estrangement from myself, an ability to, or a seeking out to <clears throat> understand the lives of others to be in them and a kind of psychological restlessness yeah um perhaps that's a thing to do with youth perhaps it's from living in many places that were transforming and changing i don't know but um for me books were home they are home <laughs> still um whether it's tolstoy whether it's achebe whether it's um Anita Bruckner, where it doesn't matter. There's a, I can find myself a little, slip into them like a little ghost and kind of observe and go, what is going on there. But, um, yeah, I suppose I'm writing a nonfiction book. I suppose it's nonfiction. It's a memoir which Jonathan Ball will publish next year yeah. called Jumping Ship, and it's very interesting process writing nonfiction again, trying to inhabit yourself inhabit myself yes inhabit my life and uh, decide which relatives to declare war on or not i mean that's a, a great power but to to think about what it was to have the homes that i have had and this home i've made for myself um in writing i don't know it's it's home is home is a difficult uh, concept. I, I always think a song I was, should have given you was Lena Lovitch's, which went, home is where the heart is. Home is so remote. Well, Let's home, go to your place. What you're making is home yourself. And I'm going to, Ella, because we do have to move on to Margie's next guest so quickly. It goes so fast. Is We have to go to a break. But before we go to that break, Ella, I want to ask you, if Margie is trying to re-inhabit herself and find home within herself, where are you finding home? I'm with Margie. The home is for me within books. And the reason for that is that books are about possibilities. And within those possibilities is hope, which yeah. we all need right now. And I think that um, hope is also those possibilities that question us perhaps makes us curious. And if you're a curious person, I hope, I would hope that there's some kind of intellectual longing that mm. allows you to embrace the world. Yeah. Ella, thank you so much for joining us and for joining uh, Margie as her guest. That's Ella Wakatama, and our guest presenter today is the author Margie Orford. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, destination unknown. Well, I have to say, I feel like I am learning about life all again, and it's a wonderful thing. Our guest presenter is Margie Orford. And uh, Margie, your second guest, I love it. We've got an artist who works with light, and I think right now, the idea of large, light, solo experiences is something that I would walk a mile for. Maybe talk to us a little bit about Daniel Kanaga. So, Daniel, hi, Daniel. Um, 
Daniel and I are doing this conversation because he and his wife were meant to be visiting in South Africa at some point and now no one can fly anything. But I met Daniel. This is like a fairy story. Five years ago, I had a an artist's residency and it was all proper artists. I was sneaked in under the radar as a crime novelist. <laughs> and Daniel was... <laughs> Daniel... Um, is started his career as a photographer and he makes these most incredible um, installations mm. about technology and all sorts of things. And he was working on a new project, which we discussed. There were 12 of us in this beautiful castle in Umbria. It was like the Borgias would have felt like outdone by this gorgeous <laughs> castle. And my life has been downhill since then. I was a, a principessa in an Italian castle, and I had Daniel and uh, Serkanoskaya and a whole lot of other artists, a wonderful uh, um, American writer called Adrian Haroun. And we just had these magical eight weeks in this in this castle. And Daniel and I stayed friends. I lived in Madrid uh, for a few months where, where he spends much of his time. And we've just had this wonderful conversation about art and light and drawing people in and the work he does is what I what I thought would work so well with this is draw people in virtually these big yes. installations of ordinary people which he will explain he does not run out of words does Daniel thank you so much for joining us uh, and for, for for being here as Margie's guest and I want to I want to jump in with that idea of what Margie has raised it's a beautiful idea the idea of drawing people in with light. Uh, yes, um, this is part of a, a series of projects I did where there's like a major kind of public participation component. Um, I'm very interested in in thinking about the public realm as something that perhaps uh, is being eroded. <laughs> and through my installations, I, I try to bring the public back into the space that really isn't, that he or she is entitled to um, via projections on buildings, on monuments, on usually significant emblems of a city. Um, I've done this over, I don't know, maybe a dozen different times. So this is just a part of my practice, these kind of public participation projects where everybody usually gets together for um, for a video shoot. Um, and uh, there's like a, a certain actions they have to perform. These actions are then edited and then projected um, as this kind of mass collective uh, takeover of, of, of the public space. Daniel, you know, you've raised something. Um, I've just seen recently that they've been um, uh, projecting images of uh, different countries' flags on the Matterhorn. Um, and then I also have, I'm thinking also about something like closer to home where they've, in a hotel that's now shut down, they uh, created an entire light thing with the rooms to spell out certain images um, and, and really positive images. And the power of what you're doing is that it doesn't require people, given our current situation, to say, okay, I have to charge art. I have to get there to actually have a look or experience that art. Uh, yes. I mean, I'm actually being presented with some huge challenges as an artist because yeah, I sure. um, 
of course, I make art that then is supposed to be looked at in museums and in galleries, places that are now currently closed, and it seems like they will be for quite a quite an extended time. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the interesting developments in my practice and and. My art it always takes me to places I don't expect. That's one of the things that people always think that as artists we select or we pick our content. And it's really the content that things pick us. And I found myself working a lot with data and using data to create artwork. Yeah. So there's been a very interesting development in, in my in my work in the last, I would say, three years where I'm using a lot of data that I get from technology. I get, excuse me, I get from the internet. And uh, this data is then used uh, to create uh, usually abstractions uh, that are seen on screens or seen in, uh, you know, can be seen online. So in a way, I've kind of been preparing myself inadvertently for this kind of new world that uh, we, we are being presented with that has some phenomenal challenges for artists in terms of how they're going to get their work out there. The fact that I'm using the internet as a tool to um, create my works is is being um, a way of being able to cope and to think about this new reality that we will find once we're able to kind of get out of our lockdown and 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 discover this new world that we're going to be uh, walking walking out to. Sounds like in a in a, in a few months. True. Daniel uh, and Margie, so I'll start with you, Daniel, because we are going into the closing few minutes. Uh, you talk about this new world, and I would very briefly like to get an insight from you, and Margie, I'll close with you as well, is, Daniel, what what do you hope for this new world in a much broader, maybe perhaps even philosophical way? Um, I hope for a more compassionate world, Um, I think that uh, despite the horrific massacre, and I live in one of the biggest epicenters uh, of uh, coronavirus, um, that has been a tremendous, I know so many people that have died in the the last few weeks, um, but this has been an act of humility, of uh, surrendering, I guess. I've had to learn how to surrender to the circumstances, not not continue with my plans and my I, I always like to plan everything and try to get a sense of control through my planning but I have very little control so this I'm hoping will will make us surrender not only to the circumstances but become more passionate more compassionate to to others and to to be able to kind of see ourselves and understand ourselves in a new way that we haven't really had a chance to do up to now that's fantastic Daniel Kanaga. Margie, I'm going to leave the closing words for you. Humility, surrender, compassion. What is the new world for you? The new world, I think, I hope, is a a slower one. And it's brought back. The main thing that we've learned is that the world, the entire world, have decided that the people we love and their lives are more important than a rampaging stock market. We've chosen value over some simple kind of monetary debits, you know, adding up, it's worth this, it's worth that. And that human life and our connections with each other are profoundly more important and we can choose them. It's not going to be easy, but we can choose that connection and love with each other. So that's what you choose? I do. 
connection and love, which is easy to say you want connection if you have to be by yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, 10 million people on the underground in London are incredibly irritating. And I'm glad I don't have to be with them all every day. I must say that too. (laughs) Just not to seem too virtuous. Margie, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Author Margie Orford giving us a whole new take and I have to agree with you 100%. And we want to say thank you for joining us all the way from London. Go get yourself another strong cup of coffee. It is only 9 o'clock for you. But guess what? For us it's already 10 o'clock. I want to say thanks to our team, to Zalma, to Mdu, our skeleton staff, to Taboho who is out and about tweeting and of course to Monique who is off-site as well. It is 10 o'clock. It's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.